Welcome to the podcast for St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School Sherman Center that's in Random Lake, Wisconsin, north of Milwaukee and south of Sheboygan. We're pleased to share with you recent sermons and Bible classes from our congregation. We welcome you to join us for Divine Service Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. We have Bible classes currently offered at 8.15 a.m. on Sunday. Join us to receive the Lord's Word and His gifts. All right, so John chapter 3, we're still there. Uh, I think one of the reasons to kind of sit, sit a while on this text is because it's, um, one, it's beloved, John 3.16, right? You see that all football games, people write it on their foreheads or their chest or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, you probably know it by heart. And, uh, uh, and so then, I mean, it ends up taking on a lot of importance. It would be the same reason why, yeah, you want to put those by the door? Okay, so there's walk in. Um, like uh, Psalm 23 would be another example where you say it so often, you, I think you might start to just gloss over the details, right? Because you just know it by heart and you just say it. And that's not a problem. Lord's Prayer maybe is that way too. And um, this is why it's worth stopping and considering. It's good to know it by heart. Don't, don't get me wrong there. Um, but it's worth taking time periodically to go back and say, okay, now what am I actually saying, right? And think it through. And John 3.16 is the same way. All right, last week we... Uh, didn't quite get to 3.16. That's where I wanted to get to, but we didn't quite get there. So let's, hmm, where should we jump in? What do you think? I don't want to go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 3. Remember, we're talking to Nicodemus. Uh, how about we start with verse 10 and read through 21. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through him might be saved. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Okay, end quote. Uh, those words are put in the, in the mouth of Jesus in my, in my Bible. It's all in quotations. But I think we talked about it last week and you'll see it... Um, in the second paragraph, where it says 316 to 21, that I, I believe, and I think most of your Bibles indicated this, that 16 is beginning not only a new thought, but it actually is this, uh, the evangelist stepping back and giving you a commentary. And this is not unique to the Gospel of John, right? We, we talked about it, uh, like John's statement towards the end, the purpose statement. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's not Jesus speaking, that's... John the Evangelist stepping back and saying, "Here's why I'm. This is why I wrote all this for you." It's a, which you don't see in the other evangelists. It's it's unique to John, and I think the argument could actually be made um, that John's gospel is preaching, start to finish. And if you've not done it, do any of you have like audio Bibles, like on tape or CD or MP3? There's actually some on the shelf right behind you, John. Um, if you have a cassette player, if people have those, I guess. <laughs> You did? Yeah? Okay. Right. Well, there's audio. Listen to the whole Gospel of John straight through. It won't take you that long. It sounds like it would take a while. It actually doesn't. It's probably, what, three and a half hours maybe? When it's read out loud? 
So it, it sounds like it would take a while, but it's actually not too bad. Um, but that way you would see a lot of these, you start to make all those connections. Not, maybe not the first time, but the next couple times through. So that's how a sermon works too. You don't always get it the first time around. Um, believe it or not, pastors preach the same sermon more than once. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if I was just more sharp than others or something, or I just noticed. But, you know, with a three-year lectionary, you have the same readings every three years. Now, with the one year, it's more obvious. You could tell if I preached the same sermon as last year because you heard it last year. That's what I say. Actually, you probably wouldn't because you don't remember it. Right? You might say, oh, that sounds familiar. But that's as far as you get. Now, if I used an illustration, like I said, you know, when I was young, I was playing football, which I didn't do. And, you know, there was this great big game and all that. And so I told you a story from my life. You'd remember that. And if I use that again, then you would notice. But you don't notice if the text is preached again, which is an interesting phenomenon. Anyway, um, yeah, I remember noticing it every three years. I'd be like, that sermon sounds very familiar. It was because the stories were the same, too. The same illustrations. You know, when you're 20, 20, 25 years into, into your ministry, it's not like it's not true. And do you have to be like creative and new every time? I don't actually. It's the same with the Sunday school stuff. It was yeah. three years the same story, but maybe a different little hmm? paragraph or something. Yeah, yeah, it would be adjusted or shifted. I know they changed the date so you could never really use that. Well, so I'm, I'm speaking to the, I mean, this is a pastor's problem, not maybe your problem, but from a pastor's problem, it's like, oh, we always have to be creative and unique and try to say something new and interesting every time. And actually we don't, and we probably don't want to, or we probably shouldn't, I should say, want to, because you need repetition to retain it, right? Um, so I'll tend to say a lot of the same things repeatedly throughout the year as I'm even just wrestling with how to say it best, for example. All right. Uh, but that's a side note. So let's back up a few verses, because uh, we didn't really talk too much about this. Uh, I wanted to last week, we did. Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that's Jesus, that whoever believes in him should not perish, um, but have eternal life. All right, so 14 and 15. And uh, we talked, last week's sheet, what did I put on there? So must the Son of Man, oh yes, You see that this is the bronze serpent um, event. There's all these parallels between those two events. All right? And uh, so think about it. uh, Moses lifting up the bronze serpent. And in in the case of Jesus, it's the Father. Right? God the Father. You have the fiery serpents, which God sends among his people for judgment. At the cross, actually, we have the judgment of God. But incidentally, it's different. We'll talk about that. You have the bronze snake on the pole, who corresponds to Jesus on the cross, right? Uh, pole on the cross, then. The act of seeing, so you see the bronze serpent and you live in numbers. How about for you? Do you see the cross and live? We talked about this last week. How do you see it? By hearing it. Yeah, by hearing it through your earballs, as I said, right? Quoting a professor of mine. I know, it just sounds so funny, so that's why I keep saying uh, so for us, actually, you're saved not by looking on the sun with your eyes, but by looking upon him in faith, believing after hearing or by hearing. Uh, and then this, again, the points of comparison aren't always like this. They're equal. Sometimes they're like this. Right. So in the case of the bronze serpent, they didn't die. They were healed. They still died, though. Right. They didn't die immediately, but they still ended up dying later. Whereas you look upon the son of God, not only are you not going to die, but you're not going to ever die. <laughs> Eternal life, right? So you see the point of comparison is like lesser to greater, which actually is what's going on with the fiery serpents too. Um, the fiery serpents are sent among the people as a judgment against their unbelief. At the cross, fiery serpents aren't sent among the people. Who are they? I mean, the fiery serpent is the one who, you know, the prophecy from Genesis, right? I'm trying to give you a visual. Yeah, bites his heel, right? The serpent is the, uh, um, who is allowed actually to finally afflict the son, and that's actually that's his undoing. You know, it's kind of like you think that the ser- this is how a serpent probably thinks. You know, I'll bite him, and then the venom will kill him, and it turns out that death overcomes or life overcomes death, right? In Christ, Jesus has a great greater antidote. Yeah, he is the antidote, right? Yeah, to the venom of the, of the devil. Right, so actually all the judgment of the entire world 
is placed upon Jesus at the cross. So you can see there is a point of comparison, but it's not, <laughs> there's, there's lesser to greater, right? Okay. So that was last week on that sheet, if you want to see that, if you don't have it. But here, um, oh, I also talked about exalted and lifting up, and I gave you, I mentioned Philippians 2, 7 to 9. I actually don't think that's such a great verse, but let's, so I left it off this week. Um, I think it's actually a different, uh, Paul had something else in mind. But look at, look at John 12, 32 to 33, all right? Now, we talked, we've talked about Bible, let the Bible interpret itself, right? Scripture interprets Scripture. Um, but even better, in my book, um, or at least more, mm, more profound, is letting the same book interpret itself. Make sense? So how else does John speak in the same way in his gospel or in his epistle uh, in a lesser sense? So what does Jesus say? Oh, maybe back up to verse 30 or 31. Yeah, 30. Because it's got that judgment language, right? So you want to read it? 30 to 33. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. Okay. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Right. Um, notice judgment. Oh, this is John 12. And it sounds like, oh, that's early in John's gospel. Um, John 12, we're already into Holy Week. So this is an interesting note with John. You think, oh, you know, judge, Holy Week doesn't come until like chapter 17 or 18. No, it's back in chapter 12. Uh, about half of John's gospel is the Passion. So... When we hear the passion um, at, at uh, you know during Holy Week, um, the John readings are actually we don't even hear most of it. Like the whole high priestly prayer in the upper room, it's about three chapters of that. It's a very long prayer that John records. Um, we don't even have that liturgically. Notice, okay, he's going to be lifted up from the earth, and he'll draw all people to himself. Now, maybe because of the creed, uh, maybe also because of Philippians two from Paul. I think our first expectation is when he says, when he is lifted up, all men will draw to himself. He's referring not to his cross, but to his ascension. That's right. That's right. And that's probably exactly why John says in 33, this he said, signifying by what death he would die. All right. That the lifting up of Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus is the cross. Now, um, our Reformed friends don't like this because they think the cross is the greatest act of humiliation of Jesus. And it is the final act of his humiliation that he submits himself unto death. Yeah. But, but it could, I could, it could be argued that, that both humiliation and correct. exaltation, it would be his final act of humiliation and his first act of exaltation. Right, because he overcomes sin, death, and devil at that. So this is drawing all men to himself. And, and John's emphasis, actually along with Paul usually, is that we don't look to the resurrected Christ for our hope, we look to the crucified Christ for our hope. And the resurrection being um, the Father's validation that, that his suffering and death on the cross has, is, is the victory over sin and death because the grave could not hold him. Um, now this is, a, this is a, especially, I'm sorry, I'm going to be stereotypical, I'm going to stereotype uh, what we pejoratively call Bronze Age pastors, <laughs> all right, uh, which is actually some of you fit in that demographic. We're talking about the boomers, the pre-boomer and boomers. Um, bronze in that they like you had TLH, the hymnal, Lutheran hymnal, and then nothing changed for about thirty years. You just kept doing TLH, and there's I know there's variation. I'm being a little pejorative, but. Um, one of the things that, that was a thing, I don't know where it came from, was that, that we need, like on Easter, we don't want the crucified Jesus, we need the resurrected Jesus on Easter. Right? And then on Easter, the liturgy would actually have a say, if Christ is not raised from the dead, our faith is in vain, right? right? But notice it says, raised from the dead. So Easter, we don't ignore death, actually. Easter is, what, the proof that everything that happened, Good Friday is the chief festival of Holy Week not Easter Sunday. And then the season of Easter is actually a celebration. Um, think about um, 
Hmm, some of the liturgical songs of Easter. I'm sorry, I'm giving you a little rant here. Um, what's the Christians to the Paschal victim? Now offer their thankful praises. The lamb, the, how's it go? The lamb, the sheep has ransomed. The lamb, the sheep has ransomed. Christ who only is sinless. It's all the Easter, this Easter canticle, it's all about the cross. You're like, whoa. So you, you can't have Easter without Good Friday. That's the point. And for some reason, folks would say, well, like this happened in Chicago. This was their practice. They put the crucifix on the altar, so a cross with Christ's corpus on it. But then on Easter, the, that one had to go away and you had to have an empty one. Of course, what is an empty cross? A cross without Jesus. <laughs> a cross without Jesus. Uh, just a sign of torture and death, right? It's, Unless Jesus is upon it, it doesn't actually do you any good. But that's a side note. I guess it's probably because we don't want to put an empty tomb on the altar. Like, I don't even know, how would you do that? <laughs> yeah, so I, I get the idea, but it's also, uh, at least with John's gospel, it's always the moment of exaltation is the cross. That's where the, the sun is lifted up. And that is for the, the death of Jesus is for the healing of the nations, for all people. Make sense? All right. So it's a little bit of a rant. Um, like I said, you don't just want to talk about Easter without Good Friday. That's the point. That's the same way you don't talk about Good Friday without Easter. Otherwise, it just becomes this morbid, kind of depressing day. Yeah, it's a Good Friday. Go well, I know what you do. The empty cross is symbol of Jesus' resurrection. Well, that's, I, that's what I was saying, because you can't really show an empty tomb. Like, how would you signify an empty tomb? I think that's the idea of it. Um, Actually, historically, you want to talk about uh, the use of the symbol. That wasn't the sign of the resurrection, actually, for the first couple hundred years. Not really till Constantine did they have empty crosses. When, they actually, when Helena, Constantine's mom, found the true, part of the true cross. That's a whole other story. <laughs> but uh, what was the sign? Do you, you know what sign the Christians used? Fish. Yeah, the fish. Right? Referring to what? A couple, maybe a couple different things. The name of Christ. Okay. Yeah, because it would say X through Son. It was actually kind of uh, subtle. Because it, unless you kind of, it was inside baseball. That's what we call it. Like, unless you knew, you're like, what if, why do you have a sign? Why do you have a fish on your car? <laughs> what people do. Uh, fishers of men, right? Okay. What's the other one? What's the big one, actually? Okay, yeah, the, you do have the fishes, the feeding of 5,000. We haven't gotten the big one yet. It's actually a sign of the resurrection. Jonah? Yeah, Jonah. Three days in the belly of fish, so it's death and resurrection. Right, so it's the fish that swallowed Jesus. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? All right, so it, it, it's hard to picture resurrection. Um, I think that's maybe the challenge there. And like I said, we don't want to go to Easter and leave Good Friday behind. Good Friday is, at least according to Paul and John uh, in particular, that's, that's the moment of your salvation. And that's what you rejoice in on Easter Sunday, is actually the death of Jesus for you. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. In uh, some of the archaeology that they've been digging up, there was a stones or some sort of symbol with not only the fish, but the symbols of bread and wine. Yeah. Yeah. Right, and they did take the feeding of the 5,000 in particular and saw connections to the Lord's Supper. Um, Lutherans moved away from that, especially following Luther. So, they, but, so they, we would prefer to use bread and wine rather, or you know, wheat and grapes or something like that rather than to use fish and bread because you know, it doesn't really match up. And then if you look at the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is talking about a lot more than the Lord's Supper. Certainly it's in the background. It's certainly part of it. But that's not really what's going on. This is John chapter 6. We haven't gotten there yet. We'll get there eventually. Yeah. No, that's good. Symb- iconography and symbols. That, one of the challenges with a symbol is that sometimes the symbol takes on a life of its own. It starts to mean things that even maybe weren't intended by the ones who instituted it. We say, here, let's use this symbol. And I think empty cross maybe is one of those where you go to churches where there's like crosses all over the place, but there's not a single one with Jesus dead upon it. So, you know, what's the, what's the challenge there? Hmm. Okay, uh, and the reason being, look at the first paragraph here. Actually, I put it. By what death he would die, and the prophecy of Isaiah 52, 13, which is, you know that one probably by heart. 
Do you? No. Okay. I guess I'll just read it for you. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. This is a Good Friday text. He shall be exalted and extolled and very high. And you're like, oh, okay, that's the ascension. This is what we're talking about. Is that the ascension? No, keep going. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Right? So we're not talking about the risen Christ. We're talking about the one whose visage is marred more than any other man who, who is a worm and not a man. It comes up later, right? Stricken and afflicted. So when the servant of God, namely the son, deal prudently, right? This is problem with English. What does that mean? Act wisely, I guess. There's another way you could translate that. He shall be exalted and extolled and very high. And we think, oh, that's this moment of glory. And it's, the, as we've talked about many times, at least for John, the glory of God is revealed in the death of Jesus. So, it, and it's counterintuitive, right? Because it's a moment of thick darkness and judgment and death. And yet that's, this is the glory of God revealed for sinners in this moment that seems to be upside down, backwards, which is what Luther calls at Heidelberg, the, uh, uh, to be a theologian of the cross is to see God not in revealed things, but in his revealed word, right? Not as things seem or see, but as he has said, they are. Okay. So what did I say here? Apart from the crucified, there is no salvation or eternal life, right? Eternal life is received and possessed in faith, there's an interesting point. Eternal life is not only a future gift, which is how we usually talk about it. Oh, we will live forever, right? But it's also the life now given and present in the act of believing. So I've said it this way in sermon for you, probably, since I've been here, but it's a phrase I use frequently, is that your, Jesus already has gotten your death over with. You've already died with Christ. Right? This is how a Christian can live in hope is that we look at the grave and say, that's already done. Jesus already died for me. My death has already been defeated. Right? So now you can live, not worried about like, are you gonna, how long are you going to live, but actually, in, in the best sense of the word, carpe diem, right? you can live for, the, live for the day. Because every day is a gift from God. Whether now in the body or then in the resurrection. That's how Paul talks about it. Right? You know. Yes, I look forward to the resurrection, but if the Lord gives me days now, then that's good too. It's good. It's actually, what does it say? It's fruitful labor for me. <laughs> right? And you don't have to worry about all, the, all this judgment stuff. Like, have you been good enough? This is the sermon today. Have you been good enough? Have you done enough? Have you, do your life, does your life stack up on the scales of God's judgment? Because that's actually already over with. You're his child. You're forgiven. He's found you. Go in peace. That's it. Well, there's nothing more to do. Not in terms of salvation. No, there's your neighbor. They need your love. But God has loved you. Um, And that just uh, probably grinds us a little bit the wrong way. Rubs us the wrong way. I say grind because it's a little bit more than rubbing. It's like, really? You're just going to take everything out of my hands and put it all in yours? Yeah, that's how it works. And that's good news. So uh, it's actually a life now. You've already gotten death over with. You're already in the eternity. That's why we can say weird things like we're at the altar um, on the Lord's Day when the supper is offered that, the, that we're gathered with saints and angels and the whole host of heaven. You're like, wait a minute, I'm not in eternity yet. <laughs> How am I gathered with saints and angels and the whole host of heaven? No, you actually are already in eternity. They're already with you. You're already with them. Uh, that's why I think it's weird that uh, when somebody says you know, that their loved one has died, you say, we lost them. Like, you didn't lose them. <laughs> They're not lost to you. You don't see them, but if they died in faith, they, you're still joined to them. You're, you're not going to find them you know, at home, but you're going to find them at the altar. Where two or three are gathered in my name, where, where you joined, where you are receiving Christ's body, they are too, and you're joined. They're, they're with you. They're not, they're not absent from you. It's just, it's just kind of a strange thing. People just pick up phrase and they just keep saying it. And you're like, Have you thought, stopped to think, what does that word mean? They're not lost. They're not lost. As a matter of fact, they're actually found. <laughs> to use the famous uh, hymn for funerals, which I don't think should be used for funerals, but that's another story. All right. Eternal life is, therefore, that life lived by faith. Yeah, I, you know what's him I'm talking about. Which binds and unites us to Christ the crucified and thus is conformed to him. Um, so 
So you're joined to Jesus, you have his life, and then by having received his life, namely through baptism, um, then he actually conforms you to him. So uh, this is where Rome gets it wrong when they talk about purgatory. There, there needs to be some special time between death and eternal life for you to kind of get everything straightened out. That's what they think. Okay? And there's a couple of texts from apocryphal books that Maybe a little bit from Jude, okay, which we actually are not so sure should even be in the Bible. Another story for another time. <laughs> and uh, no, actually, this is what the Lord's doing with you every day. He's putting to death the old Adam, and he's raising in you, through the forgiveness of sins, new life in Christ every day. You are being conformed to the image of Christ every day. Uh, now, you look at your life and you say, I haven't actually really gotten all that much better. It seems like I've actually gotten a little bit worse. Maybe a lot worse. Things are not, they used to be so great, and now they're actually terrible. You know, sometimes that's how life looks. And then the scriptures say, actually, that's you being conformed to the image of Christ. Namely, the one who humbly submits himself to suffering, to death, even death upon a cross. So that's the, how you can understand then the expression of Jesus. You must take up your cross and follow me. Which means the way of the, of the Christian is not one into, what do you want to say? Um... A comfortable life of luxury or something. <laughs> uh, but it's into uh, poverty, meekness, humility, suffering, uh, even death. Okay. Any questions so far? All right, let's look at John's preaching. All right, so 16 to 21. John's going to start preaching to you. Uh, i got to get back to it. There we are. All right, good. Um, so, 16, 4, and we talked about this last week. Here it is again. I don't know, I got ahead of myself last week, so I already mentioned it. But this word, hutos, it means something more than just four. I mean, actually, four works pretty good, but I, uh, the problem with English is that if you use an old English word, so this, 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 we've received this from King James, right? So, how many years ago? King James Bible? Do you know? No. <laughs> Try 16th century. So 1542, I think, is King James. Somewhere in there. Remember, the English Reformation is only about 15 years after the Lutheran Reformation. I mean, this, that whole Reformation thing spread like wildfire throughout of all of Europe, even to England. Yeah. So remember, Henry VIII consults with Luther to find out, to have Luther approve his, the annulment of his marriage. You think and the way we study history doesn't help because as a kid I always got this. It's like wait a minute, Henry VIII and Luther lived at the same time because we, we separate. We talk about English history and we talk about German history, but they're they're at the, they're, and they're talk, they talk to each other. Luther Luther actually gives him permission, which is another whole thing because he recognizes he's like you're going to tell Henry no. <laughs> he's like yeah whatever. You're going to do sinners going to do what sinners do. That's kind of Luther's attitude towards them. Like why are you even talking to me? I'm not your I'm no authority to you. But, uh, so, why did I bring that up? Oh, four. So, four. Uh, if you want to expand that out, you can see the third paragraph down on your sheet. God so loved the world in this way. So, so this is, like I said, the evangelist preaching commentary on everything we've just heard. So, he's going to expand it out. So, in this way... God loves the world, that he lifts up the Son of Man, that whoever believes in him have eternal life. Okay, does that make sense? So that, that four hutos word, is, is, that's the indication that we've switched into commentary, if that makes sense. Okay. It's, and like I said, it's not necessarily there. I mean, think about it, though, this way, maybe. Um, if this is Jesus speaking in his own words, now he's referring to himself in the third person, which also doesn't, I mean, maybe you do, you know. I, I heard about this time that pastor did, I don't actually talk about myself that way, <laughs> in the third person. Does that make sense? It's like, maybe you do. There was that time that Ethan, um, this is you talking, it was that time that, that uh, Ethan went to Christ Academy and then he went to higher things the next week and for three weeks he didn't really sleep or eat very well and then he came to Bible class and he was very tired on Sunday morning. 
If you, that'd be weird for you to say that. It's not weird for me to say that. Okay. All right. I was trying to come up with an example. That was the only thing. I'm looking at him and he's just flat, flat affect. So I know what's going on. It would be true. It would be true. Here's another point that's important. For God so loved the world. Um, love is not uh, the motivation or the cause of him lifting up the Son of Man. Love is the lifting up of the Son. This is a problem, again, with the way we use the word in English, the way it's understood in um, the ancient, ancient uh, in the Middle East at this time, in the Greco-Roman world, as we call it, as that love is, love is an active word. It's not a... It's not an emotion, and it's not a, like a motivation. So I love you. Um, you're motivated to say those words, but the, the, act of, the act of love in saying I love you is actually saying the words out loud, right? But if you never said the words, they're going to they're gonna start to say, hmm, do you really love me? And you say, no, no, I love you. And then those words actually do what they say. Does that make sense? Um, but even better, maybe, is to couple your love with other sorts of um, activity, right? Like you did the dishes, or you took out the garbage, um, or you finally hung the fruit basket in the dining room. Not to think of any particular examples, right? Or plunged the toilet, or whatever it is, um, however love is shown. So God's love is known to you in the lifting up of his son. Uh, I do this with kids um, in catechism, because I'll just ask them this question. It's a very simple question, but it's a good diagnostic. is to say, how do you know that God loves you? How do you know confidently that God loves you? And they'll say, well, he tells me he, he loves me. Okay? No, but it's true. That's true. He does. So that's part of it. Right? Well, and, and sometimes, but sometimes they'll go this way. They'll say, well, God made me. God made me. Right, that's love, too. But he, he's given you life. Uh-huh. Um, but he also loves people who don't believe in him. Right? How, how do you know that he loves you? Not just that he made you, but that he promised you a redeemer and he kept his promise. Right? This is Adam and Eve. They know God loves them, even though they've actually rejected him. Right? Because he gives them a promise to say, this, this death thing and this being cast out of the garden, that's not going to be forever. I'm going to overcome these things. Your sin, um, this world, and um, death is going to be overcome. In the end. Wait for it. <laughs> Do whatever he tells you and wait for it. Yeah, which is rough. Um, notice that for, and then you also see so that, so that, so that. So the language here, uh, well, maybe I should break that down. For God so loved the world, so that he gave his only begotten son. So that whoever believes in him, I'm adding a word there, should not perish but have eternal life. Those are what we call, well, this is really what? Did I give you an expression? Result. What is, how would you put it? Something in result. I'm forgetting another word that we could say. Um, action result. That's how we'll put it. God does this so that this is the result. Why does God lift up his son? Oh, wait a minute. Why does God love the world and lift up his only, or gives his only begotten son? So that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. So that they would not perish from death. Make sense? I missed a so. God so loved the world, so that whoever believes in him should not perish and have everlasting life. So those are the results of God lifting up His Son. That's why He does it. Mm-hmm. So this is really John. Um, this is another one of John's purpose statements, if you like. Why? Why talk about Christ and Him crucified? Why preach that week in week out? Why is that? Why is that our message? So that. You would not perish, but have everlasting life. That is to have Jesus. Make sense? Yeah. And it's, yeah, so like I say, I mean, we hear it all the time. And we're like, oh, okay, it's fine. It's a nice thing. It sounds great. God loves me. You're like, why does he love you? How does he love you? He loves you in Christ, dying for you. Why does he do that? So that you would not die and have eternal life. So it's kind of like... Think of, like, I mentioned funeral. We'll do another funeral example. It'd be like coming to a funeral and saying, God really loves you. Now go in peace. Um, that's not really the Christian message. It's like, God loves you so much that he gave his son into death so that this person who has died will not, is not dead, but now lives forever in him. No, that's the actual gospel. <laughs> that's the Christian message. Not just love in an abstract kind of way, but love 
in this way for this result. Follow? All right, good. This is best grammar stuff, but it's work. It's helpful. Uh, so now we talk a little bit about numbers again. We didn't go back and read numbers. Do you want to do that? It's only five verses. Numbers 21, verse 4. Let me go back to that. So we're, we're hanging out in the wilderness. And, you know, as things go in the wilderness, they, uh, the people are a little... This is like a road trip. It's exactly like a road trip. I've never even thought of that. Maybe I've said it before. They're on a really long road trip, I think like 40 years. And, uh, you know, what do the kids do in the back? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Yeah. Are we there yet? What's for dinner? Are we going to stop? I, we're, I, need to, I need to pee. Whatever it is. Yeah. Just grumbling, right? Complaining. Like you brought us out of here to die. What? Why did you brought us out? Yeah, why did you bring us out here to die? I haven't heard that one. <laughs> That'd be funny. All right. 49. Anybody can read. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Mm. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. Moses made a brown snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the brown snake, so a couple things to note there uh, they go around the land of Edom did they know, need to go around Edom actually they didn't they could have gone right through Edom why they avoid the land of Edom yes. best guess What the Edomites Yeah. Uh, who are actually a, a descendants of Edom which is another name for Esau yeah Esau very good that's right um, they were powerful. And also, here's the thing. When you defeat Pharaoh, which was the most powerful nation in the world at that point, and you defeat him, guess what happens? News travels. <laughs> so here's these maybe, I don't know, six to eight million people, you know, city of Chicago, traveling through the wilderness, uh, and they're coming towards you. Uh, how are you going to respond? Granted, they're not all warriors. They're just basically herders. Um, but there's a lot of them. It's kind of like a swarm of flies, you know. You know, and if they want to get into the soccer match to see the soccer match, they're just going to push against the gates until they fall down. <laughs> they're just going to come in. That, that happens. Might trample a few people in the process. Right. So they want to go around Edom. Notice that they're going. They're back at the Red Sea again, which is also interesting. Yes, go ahead, Ron. Just looking back in chapter twenty, verse twenty, it says. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, prior to that, it says they, we will go along the main road. And, uh, and if we or our livestock drink any of your water, we will pay for it. We will only pass through foot, nothing else. Again, they answered, you may not pass right. through. Then Edom came out against them with the larger forefoot. Right, yeah. So they, they'd already had that interaction with Edom, and Edom does not want them coming through. Because, you know, they're like a swarm of, fly, or a swarm of locusts or whatever. I mean, they're just going to devour everything. Right? I mean, it's, it's like a conquering. It's like, the, like when we did Crusades. It was the same way. When the crusade, uh, I say we, Western Europe, did, had their crusades, they, they would just devastate everything in their path because they were just consuming all those towns. Um, they weren't all that charitable, at least historically that's what it looks like. Yeah, so anyway, they grumble, they're discouraged, they're impatient. Um, sounds familiar. And they speak against God and against Moses, right? So that, that's, that's a, a helpful thing to remember um, or to maybe teach children or teach yourself is that, like, for example, when you reject commandments 4 through 10, so honor your father and mother all the way through to don't covet, you are forsaking God and the one who's sent to say his word, like your father or your pastor or your teacher. Um, So we don't often think about it that way. It's like, oh, well, you know, if I just disobey my parents, there's no real, like, negative consequence. It's not the same as saying, I don't believe in you, God. 
Actually, it's exactly the same as saying, I don't believe in you, God, because God gave you that parent to honor and to serve, as the commandment reveals. See how that goes? So you actually transgress the first commandment, and Moses has no problem saying that here. They, they're just impatient, and they're discouraged, and they become angry, and they, you know, that is speaking against God. Why did he bring us out into the wilderness to die? God had promised what? You'd deliver them, right? Not to die, but into the promised land, milk and honey, all that. And then here they are, grumbling, no food and water. Well, you could ask for water, but instead you're just going, who, who does this? Maybe not so much anymore. One of you, I'm looking at my children, one of you would always be like, are we ever going to eat dinner? Instead of saying, okay, it is Luke. Are we ever going to eat? What are we going to have? Instead of just saying, hey, mom, can I help you make dinner? Not, there's no question that we're going to have dinner. But, but instead, it's just this like, eh, kind of tone, right? Yeah. Sounds like a buzzer. Just, it's right into your head. Okay. So no food and water. Of course, the worst part is our soul loathes this worthless bread. Now that is pretty explicit rejection of God's gift of the manna, right? You're just saying to God, uh, your gift, it's worthless. Whew. That's pretty intense. Yeah, so God gets a little uh, judgy. We'll put it that way. <laughs> a little. There's the snake, right? Okay. So remember, mm, God sent snakes. Here's my paragraph first, the third paragraph. Well, God sent the snakes to the people because of their sin and for their punishment. Um, as we heard, again, this, there's the point of comparison is different now. With Jesus, God sent his son into the world not for judgment, but actually to be judged. All right? Because of the people's sin and for their punishment. So he takes that. So even with the bronze serpent, the bronze serpent does take on the sin of the people. Or becomes an icon of this, the sin being taken away. They look upon him and that sin comes out through their eyes in a sense. Right? But now through the son, he is, he is the judgment. He's sent into the world for judgment. Um, I used the word there back, second paragraph, the crisis. So mine says condemnation. Your Bible said judgment, I think, whoever read it. Anybody have a different word in verse 19 of chapter 3, going back to John? Chapter 3, verse 19. This is the condemnation, mine says. Yeah. That's what it says? Verdict. This is the verdict. Ooh. Ooh. Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah. Because it's, it's uh, aute de esten hake. Crisis, or crisis, as we say. So this is the crisis. And I like that. I, I wish somebody would translate it that way. Just let the Greek word come forward. And it, I mean, it, it's the, it means the same thing in Greek and English. Why not just bring the word forward? We use this other word. The crisis. What, what do you got? You've got light, darkness, death, life. You, know, you see all these. It, that is, it's something's got to give. There's got to be a resolution to this. And it is actually Jesus who's at the center of that crisis. Uh, also, the crisis, back in the second paragraph, between faith and disbelief. Right? So faith, or unfaith, if you like, corresponds to life, and death corresponds to light and darkness. And at the middle of that is a crisis point. And who is the crisis, actually, then? Christ crucified. Well, Paul does this, right? He says that it's a stumbling block for... How do I get, I, gotta get, I always get it mixed up. It's a something stumbling block and a rock of a, a rock of offense stumbling block and for Jews and Greeks. Anybody remember how it goes? There was one reference for the Jews and then another one. I know. Another analogy for the Greeks. My brain is not working this morning. I too was at a youth conference and I'm tired. <laughs> rock of offense for the Jews and stumbling well, So something that has to do with um, the mind. Yeah, that's what I was saying. It's like an offense, but it's not. Well, anyway, somebody will find it. Somebody want to find it? Or I'll just use the Google. Should we just use the Google? It is the best, okay. It's the thing. It is the fastest. I don't think it's the best. You should remember the, stunt, the, remember the, uh, the text. Uh, was it, uh, oh, scandal. Scandalon is the, is the word, actually. Uh, we're thinking... Matthew 13, 41. But scandalon comes up a lot. The word is scandalize, to trip up. Stumbling block, scandal. 
stone of offense. What does it say? Fifteen. Uh, Thirteen. Forty-one. So of men will send out his angels. Mm, there's more than one reference. Okay. And he will yeah. weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and evil. Hmm. Okay, so that's different. But it's in there. To weed out to scandal. Huh. All right, well, you are a stumbling block to me. It's not that one. Oh, I'm thinking it's got to be a Paul use, right? So Romans 9, nope. How about Romans 11? Nope. How about Romans 14? Man, he used that word all over in Romans. Nope, that's not it. Don't set up a stumbling block. Romans 16. Nope, it's going to be Corinthians then. First Corinthians 1. There it is. First Corinthians 1, 23. <laughs> oh, I'd do a word search. Stumbling block, scandal to Jews, and foolishness. That's the word you said it had to do with your mind. Mm-hmm. Foolishness to the Gentiles. Mm. All right. So you hear that stumbling block, scandal, is a, also means scandal in Greek, scandalon, and then foolishness. So you see how the cross is a crisis then? It creates this crisis of faith. Either, can I believe that one man sent from God, who is God's son, his death forgives my sins and overcomes death and is, is all in all? Which means then it also excludes everything that I might want to contribute to that. Because he's it. Make sense? All right, so crisis. And that's what he's doing with Nicodemus too, by the way, is he's really putting Nicodemus through the ringer. Um, uh, we would put it this way. He's putting, putting to death in Nicodemus any of his own self-appointed hope or trust, anything that he trusts in apart from Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about the Canaanite woman being another example of that, where Jesus kind of intensely just whittles her down to the point where all she has is bare trust in him. No hope or confidence in herself. And that's right where God wants you. <laughs> you, th- you think he wants you to come saying, look at me, I'm so great, I'm working really hard, Jesus. Aren't you proud of me? <laughs> He's not that kind of father. I mean, I, he, he wants you to come and say, look at me, I'm a poor, miserable sinner. Um, but look at what your son did for me. Isn't that special? That's actually, that sounds kind of negative. Isn't that special? We use that as kind of a negative, but a positive. It should be a positive. All right, good. Uh, Let's see, go back to the third paragraph. I I do this so that you have something to read and consider when you get home. These notes, by the way. The snake on high is a figure of the future crucified son of God. No problem there. And the forgiveness of sins and eternal life that he would give. Look on the snake, that is the sun, and live. Refuse to look on the snake, sun, and die. Um, I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Note that both the snake and Christ were lifted up in the midst of a people already under judgment. Okay? So the snake or the cross is, an, is the judgment, but what's the verdict? We think of judgment only in a negative sense, but not, you can have a positive judgment, can't you? Yeah, like... Uh, one, not one, guilty. Yeah, for like the kings. The judgment on this king was... Um, Good and faithful servant. Yeah. yeah. Which, by the way, only really gets applied to Dave, King David and King Josiah. Everybody else, the judgment from God is not so hot. And actually, those two, not so hot either. Hezekiah was okay. Hezekiah was okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, judgment for people already under judgment, I should say. And the promise is also for everyone. So that all who look upon the serpent on the pole would live. All who look upon the sun would live. Make sense? So there are some points there. This is what Luther said. Both are given for healing. The world is already judged by original sin, the hereditary fall, and by the law of Moses. So you're already under judgment. This is a good point. We're talking about funerals. We'll bring another funeral example in. Why not? Is to say, there's, re- there's a really great preacher of the law at, a, a, at least a traditional Christian funeral. And there's a practice that we've kind of adopted that avoids this. But usually, it's a body in a casket. Uh, cremation makes this a little bit harder. But the body in a casket, you look upon that and you say, um, that's, a, that's, that's bad. <laughs> right? Um, no matter how good the... Uh, what do you want to call it? The embalmer is. 
Oh, doesn't she look good? I always, I don't even know what to say to people. I'm trying to control my, my, my facial expression. I'm like, no, not really. And just like, just touch the skin and you're not going to say that. Doesn't she look good? Um, so that's a great law. Pre- so we're, we're in the midst of law preaching our lives that the whole, the whole world is a sermon of the law of death, of corruption, of judgment, thorns and thistles. Think of Genesis, right? People are dying left and right. Um, there's despots. There's, and we like to think that we can overcome all of this and that somehow this world is going to be redeemed to be a better place. There's little pockets of it, right? Where Christians are gathered around Jesus. We see little, we see moments of, of heaven by God's grace, by his gift. But overall, right? Until finally the world is destroyed. And Christians get sometimes caught up in the idea of Christendom, right? So think Constantine here. Like, like we can somehow overcome sin and death through our own um, activity, even as faithful Christians. And uh, good luck with that. We should fight for things like um, our society, our country, for um, protecting things like marriage and life. Mm, but it's not going to overcome sin and death. It's only just going to make things a little bit more passable or livable for a while. Uh, here's what actually matters. Faith given in baptism is the determining factor of the one who has eternal life or who remains in death. Right? So that, that's what it's all about. Faith in baptism. Remember, this is all about baptism. Chapters 1 through 4. So the, the difference, the crisis, is known in baptism. And remember we talked about this earlier in chapter 3. That baptism joins you to the death of Jesus, joins you to his cross. You are washed in his blood, actually it says, right? Revelation. Again, another writing from John. To look upon the true snake, Christ, in faith is to be begotten of water in the spirit. Oh, that's a pretty profound statement. I don't know if you agree with that. I'm skipping a bunch of stuff in between, but I put two things together that actually belong together in John. That to look upon Christ in faith, upon the cross, that's what it means to be begotten of water and spirit. That's what baptism gives to you. To see Jesus for who he is. The one who died for you to forgive you. Apart from baptism, at least in John, faith is incomplete. Faith can't actually abide by that. And we talked about that two weeks ago, right? That faith has this less than black or white kind of character in John's gospel. There's people who believe, but they don't believe in the Son in in that way. Uh, let's see, what else do we want to talk about? We only have a couple minutes. Let's do 21 just quickly, so that way we can move on to the next section next week. Is that fair enough? Just give me a few minutes here to do this. Whoever does the truth comes to the light. Um, that's in verse 21. So light and darkness are a theme here. And again, it's just another way to teach. John's going to use this more later on. It's another way of teaching death and life. Um, what were the other things? Faith and unfaith. Right, so light and dark, and uh, another way to describe the crisis: the presence of the light opposes, no, exposes. There's a typo. Exposes the sinner for who he in fact is. John one nineteen. The light is therefore a threat to the will and way of the sinner. So when we're talking about this crisis thing. Um, this is what we're talking about. Some people see the cross of Christ and it's beautiful to them because they see the love of God given for sinners. Others see the cross and they say, what a horrible thing. You hear this especially like with the new atheists, which is a little bit less of a fad than it was 10 years ago, but it's still around a little bit. It's like, how could God the Father do such a thing to a son? That's, that's what, what do we call that? Fratricide, right? Where you kill your, kill your own son. So that's terrible. Right? This is divine child abuse is what they'll say. Right? And what's the problem? They see the cross. They see it as a crisis. But, but outside of baptism, outside of faith in the Son. They can't see it for what it is. It's Jesus giving his life for sinners. Right? So this, uh, this is an important point to make. Um, that not everybody hears the gospel in the same way. Uh, Pastor Goodman said that actually I think in his second plenary this week. We have plenaries, so there's worship, there's plenaries, breakaways, there's fun time So at, at these conferences. The plenaries where everybody's together hearing 
uh, one pastor present to them, or layman sometimes. Um, and Pastor Goodman said this is actually the dividing line or the point of, uh, how did he say it? It's actually the gospel. The gospel is the thing that divides us. Now, we like to say the gospel is the thing that unites us. Right? But if you, if you look back at the history of like churches trying to get together, I mentioned the ELCA earlier, which is a conglomeration of multiple Lutheran bodies. How did they agree to get together? Not around the gospel, even though it's in their name, evangelical. How did they agree? They agreed to disagree. We can set aside our differences doctrinally, what, what the Bible says, set that aside for the sake of this greater mission, which isn't the gospel. That's in their history. Um, whereas, actually, um, if somebody walks away from the congregation, um, it's usually terrible, but sometimes it's necessary. Um, sometimes, though, it is actually because they can't, they, they do not want forgiveness of sins. And that gets on grates on them because what's the backspin of saying your sins are forgiven? That you sin. That you sin. That you are a sinner. Week in, week out, you hear that, whether you like it or don't like it. Uh, and that, you know, if you have a very high anthropology, a very high self-esteem uh, or consideration of oneself, that can really get on your nerves. That most of you are lifers, so you you don't you don't know what it's like to think more highly of yourself than you ought. You've been devastated every week for your whole life by your pastor, <laughs> blonde gospel preaching, but hopefully. But, um, but those who come from outside, another tradition know that that's not how everybody preaches. It's generally, we have, like in Rome, it's we have this capacity for good. And uh, then Jesus comes along and, and he, or the spirit comes along, the spirit of Jesus, and he kind of whips it up into a flame. You've got the spark of the divine and then everybody has that and then he just has to, he just has to kind of stir it up in you, and then and then you collaborate or cooperate with that. Which I don't think they would actually come out and just say it so boldly. Maybe some of the priests would. I don't know. Um, and this is important to note. Uh, this is what's going on in twenty one, which is the reason I wanted to give you this to leave. Who he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. And the important note there is is just like forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's not a, the condition, it doesn't work in English. It's not a conditional. God will forgive us if we forgive others. Or here, um, if we do the truth, we will come to the light. Even though that's the word order, that's not how it works in Greek. He who comes to the light does the truth. Would be the better, it's not a literal translation. I'm reversing it but it's just, it's a grammatical construction in Greek that doesn't really translate well into English. So, in other words, like with St. Paul, um, faith is manifested in, in love. Right? Or in good works, if you like. Right? He who comes, who, we'd say, he who comes to the light does the truth. But he only does the truth because he's been brought to the light. He's come to the light. And how does he come to the light? By baptism. By the preaching of God's word, right? So good works then, this is just, Lutherans sometimes say, oh, works don't save you, which is true. Um, but then we forget kind of the other part of that, which is that actually works are a fruit of faith and they're promised from God too. But again, fruit, work by the Holy Spirit. He brings you to the light and then you live in the light. Like I said, you already have eternal life. You have, nothing, you have no, there's no judgment for you trying to love your neighbor. You do it, do it as well as you, as you can. And God's not going to hold your failures against you. Because that's already dead. That's already been crucified in Jesus. So you're free to just live in love for one another and for the world. For your neighbor. Without any thought of whether or not, what's God going to think about it? Because he already has thought about it. <laughs> and plus he's prepared those works for you to do before the foundation of the world. So, beforehand. So he already knows what, you're, what you will do in love for, uh, for your neighbor out of faith towards him. Does that make sense? All right, so that's good. Then we got to get back to John the Baptist next time because he's fun. So keep your sheet. We'll we'll pick up at the bottom and then we'll uh, move into the next text. Thanks for going a few minutes long there. We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church Sherman Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin. 
If this podcast is of benefit to you, please consider supporting the work of St. John by visiting stjohnrandomlake.org, that's stjohnrandomlake.org, slash support, and give today.